everybody, welcome to the Shea Anything Podcast. I'm Andy Martino, in for Doug Williams. In other words, I am Andres Jimenez. He is Ahmed Rosario. This is going to be so good that we're going to have to have an awkward conversation about uh, post-roll <laughs> moving forward. I'm joined today by John Harper. Uh, Doug's on vacation. Uh, hello, John. Always a pleasure to be joined by you. Andy, uh, yeah, that's a nice uh, tag you gave yourself. There. You like what I did there? Yeah, I like that future. Uh, his, so you're in good shape. Maybe Doug has to worry here. He does. Look, I, I may not have had the billing uh, while I was up and coming that Doug had, but I think I've really surprised some people by how I've emerged on the scene. So since we last spoke, uh, there has been no baseball, no baseball whatsoever since Thursday's podcast, which uh, Doug uh, did with Keith. Uh, the Mets haven't played, of course, because they had uh, two members of the organization, one player and one coach, uh, still unidentified, test positive for COVID. Uh, John and I just came off a uh, long Zoom call with Brody Van Wagen to brief us on uh, what happened and what the Mets are going to do uh, going forward. So, John, what were your bullet points uh, coming out of that time with Brody? Well, obviously, the uh, co- it, as far as the COVID stuff, he he didn't reveal who the players were, the coach were, anybody involved. But he sounded optimistic that, it, that every, the way everything was handled there and as far as going forward, that they should be ready to go. They still uh, – you know, the, the close contact people were still are making their way back from Miami. He didn't say exactly how. And uh, I, it sounds like the uh, the two who were infected are still in Miami. So I guess uh, we'll know more as we I mean, it's, it's probably by process of elimination. We may be able to figure out who it was, but uh, out of out of privacy issues, they're not going to reveal that right now. And the, the as for the baseball part, I thought it was interesting that, you know, he can't he said he can't. Uh, even give you give us an idea of who will be starting uh, the starting pitchers, what the rotation will look like, because he doesn't know what these guys were able to do over this forced time off, how much guys threw and how much they didn't. So guys are coming in today and are each and kind of one on one working with Jeremy Hefner, the pitching coach, and, and as far as find out what they did and what they're going to be capable of in the next few days. So um, still a lot of unknowns, but I guess. When you look at what happened to teams like the Marlins and the Cardinals with these things, I guess this sounds like pretty pretty much the best uh, the best possible situation. Yeah, the Mets and the Reds are the two teams that have had positives and, and no outbreaks. And and I asked Brody about that, and he, not getting into too many specifics, obviously to protect people's identity, but just felt like really there were only four people in the organization other than the two who were positive that were in close contact enough to even have to be isolated and left in Miami. So it does seem like other than the two people who did have symptoms, who do seem to be coming out of it and the concern for them, it seems like uh, they dodged a bullet here in in terms of uh, the actual virus. Yeah. And uh, listen, you never know with these things. I mean, what did the Cardinals miss two weeks, right? So the Mets should be able to pretty much pick up uh, without, it's not a huge disruption to a season. It's a long, I mean, it is a long disruption, relatively speaking, but nothing like what some of these other teams had to deal with. And, uh, and, you know, I, I do think that they're going to have what they're going to have three double headers in the next, what, six days or so. So that's not going to be easy, but they do set up fairly well. And if these guys are all ready to go, I, I, what I would do, I, I'd throw DeGrom in one of those seven innings for sure. Seven inning double header games. I guess he could start the first game out of the box because they're going to have the double header on Tuesday and you could hope you hope he can go seven, and you don't even need to use your bullpen. 
And then right. uh, he can throw he can throw one of those on Tuesday and another one on Sunday. So that would cover a lot of it if he could end up doing that. And, they, they, you know, they have some depth in that pen with some of the way some of these guys have come on. Jared Hughes and they got uh, Brock back. So they have some depth there. And Brody did say, though, that he made it sound like anyway, they might get creative here in terms of using openers, things like that. Try, he, he used the term, what, bulk innings, I think bulk it was. Innings. They're, that's what they're, they're calling guys. They're not, not necessarily calling them starters. And he kind of left the door open as to where Matt's would be used. He would be used one way or another as a bulk inning guy. So right. we'll see about that. But uh, <laughs> which is what he, which he, he grew up dreaming of being a bulk inning guy when he was, <laughs> when he was in little league. So he's, he's, I'm sure that's exactly how he wants to be referred to. But I think that it, the point I think that that makes is that whether it's by necessity a little bit through this situation, so many games the next week, and also a bit by design with the Mets going more into analytics every year and their pitching usage, they're joining that that world in baseball that we've seen the Yankees, for example, and the Rays uh, really uh, strategize with uh, using those, thinking about pitching in terms of how many outs do you want to get today rather than who's your starter. The Rays basically, other than the few guys at the top of the rotation, haven't had a rotation the last couple of years. It's been so many openers. Yankees have been going in that direction too. So it sounds like with Matt's, what Brody said was, we don't know if he'll be a, a valuable starting pitcher, but he'll, we know he'll be a valuable pitcher for us. So it's giving them innings. However, uh, the Mets need to get them. And it's almost like one continuous game piecing together 27 outs after another, right? It's not the baseball that you covered in the eighties and nineties. <laughs> no, that, that there, I mean, there is still a room for a stud starter, like a DeGrom yeah. for sure. And the more you have them, still the better off you are. We've seen that, in recent post seasons uh, in year, recent years, because these guys have been used to eat up those innings, even in, out of the bullpen. Uh, but yeah, for, for regular season. And that's why the Rays have been so good is because not necessarily their starters were that great, but their whole up and down, up and down the staff through that bullpen, they've always managed to wait, find a way to put those great bullpens together and they just use all those guys. So that might work to the Mets advantage, but I guess we're going to need to see more. Uh, it's going to be interesting now to see how much they can use Lugo. Uh, they were committed to him starting. I assume they're still going to do that. And then uh, I, I thought Matt's might be that second guy to follow him if, if they had played that game last Thursday. And, uh, you know, they're going to have a lot of options. So it's going to be – I'm sure they're going to, they are going to map this out. But you're still going to have to feel for it, which uh, – have to have a feel for it, which is one more thing for uh, – we're going to have to watch with uh, Rojas and Hefner here. You know, let's transition from there into where I wanted to go next with you, John, because we've got the privilege of having you here, haven't talked as much baseball with you or read as much baseball from you as I would like in this particular year. So we were going to get into, uh, we asked you for three observations. I just felt like we had John Harper here. I wanted to hear your analysis a little bit of what's been going on on the field. Uh, and I don't know if you had Rojas. Did you have Rojas as one of your three? I, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I figured you would. So let's start there. What have you thought? Cause you bring up how he's going to have to, have that feel for his pitching because out of necessity right now, Mets don't have much of a rotation, but they do have arms. Uh, so he's going to have to figure out how to use them. And he, and Hafner as a young pitching coach is going to have to do the same. What have you seen so far? And what were you going to talk about related to Rojas and his feel for games? And you think he's going to be up for, for what lies ahead here that we're discussing with the pitching? Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. We've talked about it a little bit on baseball night, in New York, and actually the season opener, I wrote a column. I, that's where it's kind of started. Even in spring training, I got a pretty good feel. I know we've, I've talked to you about this a little bit, the same thing. It's, it's nice to talk to him. He does give you some substantive answers when you ask just baseball questions, yeah. that, things like that. But that's going back to the season opener. 
I was kind of, I was really astonished that he pulled Robbie Cano out of the game in the eighth inning and put him in as in uh, for defense. I just didn't think he'd be willing to do that that early. But he had he said, and I asked him about it, and he said, "Listen, we got to take the ego." Basically, said we got to take the egos out of it. He said he had communicated with with Cano ahead of time, which was obviously very important in a situation like that, and let him know he was going to do it. But it just told me that he was going to do what he felt was right to win games and not be intimidated by older players as a rookie manager. It, it would have been interesting to see how it had gone with Cespedes if Cespedes stayed around. That would have been mm-hmm. a difficult to, to keep pulling him out of games or using somebody else. But in any case, so I do, I've, I've liked the feel and I've liked, uh, you know, when they were struggling and he was getting some tough questions, I'd like the fact that he wasn't shying away from them and just giving you those kind of those, uh, standard answers kind of stonewalling making an excuse for players uh in particular i remember that they, they, one of the nights mats was hit hard he talked about how he saw mats's delivery slow down from the dugout and also talked about nimmo taking a bad route like he's not crushing guys but he's also giving you some kind of honest observation which not all managers do we know we went, we went that was i thought one of the problems with callaway was he was so worried about sticking to a script that he wouldn't he wouldn't even go there and I think when you get into tough times and you're going to be that type of, you're going to show that type of candor, which also reflects the fact that you feel like you have a trusting relationship with players, trusting enough to do that. I think it bodes well for your relationship with the press because uh, I think the media is going to give you a benefit of the doubt if they see the way you're handling those things. So all in all, I do like what I've seen from him. I think he's got a pretty good feel for the game. He's, I think managing in the minors all those years, you're starting to see it. He, I think he feels really comfortable with a lot of things he's doing. I thought the media thing might be the hardest because that was obviously something he hadn't done. So uh, yeah, I like what I've seen from him for the most part. Yeah. I think that, and we talked about this in opening day a little, when we were texting back and forth about what, who was going to write what, and that the Cano thing right out of the shoot was, was important because the knock on him going in was he's young. He's about the same age as, as Robinson Cano. Yeah. Tight. I heard from inside that clubhouse last year, those two were tight. And there was a concern that, okay, is Robbie Cano really going to be the shadow manager here? So making that statement right out of the gate was important and shows that they actually have a real relationship, not just like, oh, I'm Robbie Cano's Bobo, but but we have a, they have enough of a relationship where he could sell to Cano, I'm going to take you out for defense, or I'm not going to bat you third, or these kind of status things. I agree that they may have dodged a bullet a bit with Cespedes not being there because he was really hard on Terry Collins with some of that prestige, like, status ego stuff but the handling of Cano um seems big and his specific answers on baseball stuff has been great too I asked him a question about Rosario slumping the other day he gave me this long answer yeah I saw that yeah. inside pitch and how he's chasing but he's not missing when he's chasing he's making weak contact but he said it in a way where he must be so confident in his relationship with the with the players because he wasn't it didn't come off like he was ripping the player and that's so hard to do it came off like he was calmly diagnosing what they're working on. Uh, and it's not like it's going to be like, hey, Rosario, did you hear what the manager said about you? Which happened with Terry Collins sometimes, frankly. Uh, so yeah. I agree uh, that Rojas has been impressive that way. So this segment is called the uh, the three batter rule. So Rojas was your one. What's your two, John? What's the second thing you've noticed this year? My two is my new favorite player or your alter ego, apparently, uh, Andres Jimenez or Jimenez. Right. I'm not sure. I'm Jimenez of broadcasting. Yeah. 
Uh, I love watching him play. You know, uh, listen, I'm an old uh, middle infielder. The kid is smooth, smooth as silk with the glove. Uh, but it's more than that. Um, and, and obviously he's done more with the bat than I think was expected. You can see, I think he's going to be a good hitter. He's going to use all fields, but he's also has a, he has a pretty good feel for the game. Uh, you know, we've seen him drop down bunts and just be heady in terms of stealing bases. I don't think he's been caught yet. As I, mm-hmm. unless I missed one. Uh, he just, I think he has a real feel for instinct of the game. And that's something you, you don't, you can't necessarily teach. We've seen Rosario struggle with that. Uh, and he's been in the big leagues for three or four years now. So um, yeah, I just, I think he, I think he's uh, he's going to be a really good player. And I think, you know, looking ahead, I think the Mets have a big decision to make. What are you going to, I think he has to be the shortstop next year. He's much better defensively than Rosario. So what do you do with Rosario? And I wouldn't make the turn to change now because let, let Rosario play the year. I wouldn't, wouldn't mess with his head. He hasn't played much second base or third base, but next year, I think they need to have a plan in mind for him. And maybe in the off season, who knows, maybe they'll make some moves. Maybe they trade somebody, but, uh, you know, where's Rosario going to play third base, second base? Uh, what is, is he going to be a utility guy? We still don't, I, it's still hard to get a real feel for what he is because he's kind of falling. He seems like he's taken a step backwards so far this year after what we saw a second half last year, uh, well, especially offensively, he's back to, I mean, I don't think he's walked yet. Has he, uh, this nope, year? So, not one walk. I mean, uh, you know, that's a problem. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, so that's my number two is Jimenez is bright future. And he's been kind of a surprise that he was, uh, he was this ready to produce this year. Mm-hmm. And I thought one more reason to think that this team, this team, you know, has a chance to do something when you have, you have, you have this kind of depth, uh, already in the, in the, uh, in the infield. You just kind of buried a big statement in there, though. You, you, the guy Rosario, like the top prospect for several years, the guy who has looked good for months at a time in the big leagues. He's not the shortstop of the future anymore. You've you've seen enough of him, and as where you're you, you're ready to say that pretty definitively, it sounds. Yeah, I mean, I there's no doubt he's he's just really he's great defensively, and uh, if he's going to hit like enough, and I think he is. I mean, I think at, at their best. I think Rosario can do more. He's got more power. He's got, and he's got the speed. He could really, he can be a really good player. We saw it in the second half last year. So that's why I wouldn't change him right now, but yeah, I think uh, that has to be something they figure out. What do you do with Rosario? I mean, I think he could be an option second base, depending if the DH is in place and Cano, that's an option for Cano third base, depending on what you do with JD Davis or McNeil or whatever. So, and you listen, we can't, we probably shouldn't even dismiss, dismiss the way he's been playing. Mm-hmm. So they're going to mm-hmm. have to, some decisions to make in the offseason. You see anything. So we've, we've liked what we've seen from Jimenez's offense. It's obviously good enough when you combine it with his glove at, from what we've seen so far, it'd be an everyday player, but do you see holes? Do you see anything that you think the league's going to exploit? Uh, Cause I think the the reason I, I've been reluctant to have the opinion that you're having is, what if you, and I hear you're saying, don't do it this year, but let's say you make that move. Let's say pitchers do adjust to Jimenez. He's hitting 190. You've crushed Rosario's confidence because you benched him for the kid that just came up. And now all of a sudden you go from two shortstops to zero shortstops because everyone's all messed up. That's what I'm worried about. So you, you do you see, like, what would you be worried about offensively with Jimenez if you're looking ahead to what he might have to stay on top of? Well, he's still, he still needs to get a little stronger. That's the, the rap on him and the minors was that, you know, pitchers could kind of over overwhelm, overpower him. Kind of not, you know, the old uh, the old cliche knocked the bat out of his hands. But right. I, I, I've been impressed with what I've seen. He, he's he's willing to take the ball the other way. He goes to left field, uh, and 
he also has, he has a little pop when he pulls the ball. So I think the bat to ball skills from everything I've heard about him from other scouts and just watching him. Uh, and I know he did struggle last year in double a, but then he ended up, I know it's a short sample, but he led that Arizona fall league in yep. hitting. So I think there's enough there to believe that even, even on the low end, you're going to get enough production to make it worthwhile with his defense where, you know, where he's hitting maybe, you know, 240, 250 without a lot of power. But I think there's a lot more there than that. So there, I guess there's always that risk, but uh, I think he's still growing into his body. He's a young, he's a young guy. So I, I think there's a lot more there. And, uh, but I think there's also enough time here to let this play out over this season to get yeah. a better feel for it and get a better feel. I mean, it's really hard to, just know what exactly Rosario is. Is he ever going to reach that ceiling that has been projected for him for so many years? It is difficult to know what he's going to be. And it becomes more difficult with every year, which has its patches of great play and patches. Well, not great patches of above average play. Yeah. It's a terrible play where you say, well, is he ever going to put the whole thing together? And these windows with these play, some of the great shortstop that we've seen in recent years, it's not like the window's been that long. Carlos Correa had a down year last year. You never know how long you have with these guys. And if Rosario hasn't developed into the guy that the Mets had hoped, like, is he going to? I agree. And if you're not going to walk, by the way, obviously, so your only way to have an on-base percentage of, of 300 is to hit 300. That's a problem. It's not a good sign. Yeah, that's a problem. All right. Third, uh, third batter in the three-batter rule. What's your third observation <laughs> on the Mets this year? A third observation is kind of in, a, in the same theme looking ahead is that as good as Brandon Nimmo is at getting on base, he's not a center fielder. And mm-hmm. he, he, there, he's, that, that's been a problem for this team. Um, and I think they, that's another that Roas made that adjustment. He made that observation where you have to play deeper in the outfield. Cause I mean, balls were falling in there. It shouldn't be falling in, especially with Nimmo and center. So again, what are you going to do with Nimmo? Ideally you like him in that, in that lineup as a guy can get on base 400 on base percentage, but what is this outfield going to look like? I mean, they still center field has been a, been a kind of problem for them for years now, as far as finding a true everyday center fielder. So what is it going to be? Conforto's a, another year after this year, another year away from free agency. Uh, you know, JD Davis now, is he, is he going to be the third baseman? Are you going to put McNeil in left field? Again, a lot of questions there, but uh as much as I like Nimmo, I, what I've seen in center field is just convinced me that once and for all, they need to do better there on a daily basis in terms of defense if they really want to be a championship team. What do you make of Nimmo as an overall player? He, he has the great on-base skills. He seems to have a tendency to get a timely hit. He's a pleasant person to watch on TV and probably be, surely be around in the clubhouse. And I think that's helped his reputation a little bit, but is he a well-rounded enough player for you to be one of your three outfielders every day on a good team? Ideally not. If you have, if you have a strong enough outfield, he'd be, he's, I mean, he's a nice guy to have as your fourth outfielder. Uh, but you know, that present, that on-base percentage present does give you something to kind of you'd like on that in a, on a daily basis. So I don't know. I, I, he's another guy last year, his, his season was, uh, you weren't sure what to make of it because he had the problems early. He had the neck problem. He wasn't hitting early. Was it all related to the neck? Then he came back in September, had a strong September. So it looks like, um, you know, there's still room for improvement there, but he is, he's not a kid anymore either. So uh, I think he needs to probably do a little bit more power wise, extra, extra base wise, production wise to be a, if you want him to be an everyday presence, 
But I mean, if he was a true center fielder, you'd say, great, we can, this is, he's he's in there every day, but if he's going to hurt you in center field, and I'm not saying he's terrible out there, he makes the, the pretty routine plays, but you, you really want a guy that's going to make better plays than that. And, and not, and he, and he gets, you know, I, I referenced it earlier. Rojas made the observation that he took a bad route on. He, it's not the only bad route he's taken this year where he's been beaten on balls over his head. So that's a problem uh, when you're kind of living and dying, uh, especially with some of the, uh, this rotation now isn't what it was where you're just striking out 10 guys a night. So you need to get, you need guys that can make plays. So, yeah, I, I think ideally Nimmo probably is a fourth outfielder, uh, but you get, the Mets have to find a center fielder. And, you know, maybe it's this kid they drafted, but that's probably still a couple of years away. This kid they drafted at high school, I forget his name, yeah. Pete Crone, Crow something? Crow, Crow Williams. Crow, Crow Williams? Armstrong. Crow Armstrong. Yeah, that's Excuse right. me. Yes. Yeah. He's supposed to be but, tremendous in the outfield, but he's still, what is he, 18, 19 years old? John and I come up in the tabloid world where you're relevant to us the moment you get called up and not a moment sooner. We predate the, but even though, you know, we may be from different generations, but we both predate the idea of the prospect fetishizing. Of the internet. So, Pete yeah, Crow, your, whatever, your favorite, we're going to learn your name when you get here. Your favorite it's subject, the, the prospects. That's right. Um, time for this date in Mets history, uh, August 24th, 2015. I was there in the ballpark in Philly. The Mets hit a franchise record, eight home runs uh, in a game against the Phillies. David Wright returned that night from injury, uh, leading into his ability to appear in his only World Series, and he hit the first home run that night. My one memory of that game, I can't remember if you were there, John, but my one memory. Yeah, pretty sure I was there. I think so. You probably, right, at that time, those were the glory days still at the very tail end of it when the Daily News would send multiple writers to a, to a big yeah. game. Um, I remember I was sitting next to Jay Horowitz, and when Wright hit the home run, just turning to Jay, and he was a little overwhelmed, like almost a little misty, like, can you believe this guy? Can you believe this moment? And it was like another magical moment in a magical season, and the only thing that had been really missing from that year was David Wright, and and there was a real hope in the organization that, that he could – be able to participate in what they were trying to do. And then he comes back, he hits the home run right away in Philly where he always felt so comfortable hitting and ends up getting to hit a home run in the world series. But that's my memory of that night, almost like a foreshadowing of a, of a nice couple of months for the Mets. Do you have any, any specific recollections of that? Yeah. One? I mean, I do. Uh, it, it was feel, a feel good moment. And just for him to do it in that first at bat, it, it, it reminded you how special he could be. And I remember thinking at the time, that well, two things that maybe he could, this could be the, the kind of the final piece to what was they had a chance to have mm-hmm. a championship team although and and it was another it was a week or so later that I think he had a pretty big series in DC and I was there for mm-hmm. that I think the Labor Day around Labor Day series yeah. when I remember him throwing the big fist pump when he came across home plate one time so he was into it he felt good for him uh, so that was one one part the other part was that that maybe this guy still had. I've been a chance to pick up that hall of fame resume that had kind of, had kind of fallen off for a few years. And uh, if he had a finish strong finish to his career, he still had a chance to be a hall of famer. And as we know, it, it just, the back wasn't going to allow it to happen. But uh, I do remember that moment as just hey, this guy, you know, there is something special about this guy when he's healthy. There is. And I think that, uh, you know, what people remember obviously now so much is the early promise and the injuries, but, there was something special about him as a player and he was capable of, of those kinds of, of moments and he was capable of coming up big. And I think, well, of course he never got even close to that hall of fame caliber because of the injuries 
it was really nice that he was able to play in the World Series for the Mets. That that was a nice capper on what ultimately would be pretty much the end. And I also remember, in a little bit of a darker sense, John, kind of having the feeling that year, because he, he was already really breaking down. And he was yeah. playing pretty well, playing almost every day down the stretch there in 15 and thinking, I wonder if this is pretty much going to break him physically, what he's putting out now. And it, 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 it sort of did turn out that way a little bit. But it's nice that we got to see him. Yeah, I, I think I do remember writing, I wrote a column uh, in Washington, I think it was that that year uh, when he came back about just already the type of preparation he had to put in to yeah. play every day. And so, yeah, you knew that it, it was it, it was not going to be easy for him. Uh, and it made you think that, yeah, this he maybe he should really appreciate this uh, because who knows how long. And remember, at, I'm sure this was part of it, the back, the neck and everything, everything he was going through. I mean, he was having problems getting that ball over third, from third base to first base. He was kind of throwing that half side on all the submarine yeah. throw. And that became a factor in that postseason. Uh, it was a factor even in that Royals game where uh, with Hosmer taking off and scoring, because it wasn't just, I mean, Duda still should have thrown him out, but I think the reason Hosmer did it in the first place, because Wright was throwing it over there with, with so little uh, velocity to first base he but Hosmer decided to take the chance that's a good point it paid off <laughs> it, for him. It, it did I, <laughs> I, I Mets fans I believe will recall that that did pay off for the Kansas dude team. dude only missed the catcher by about 20 feet <laughs> it was <laughs> yeah. an ill-timed course. it was kind of a panic throw for sure yes it was uh, we, Doug and I have been doing something called in the absence of access to close out the shows this year because uh, obviously, we're not able to do anything uh, with players uh, this year other than what we're doing right now, which is Zoom calls. They're very controlled. You don't get to wander around the clubhouse. You don't get to read guys' body language, pull them aside. Uh, so we've been kind of talking about the things that we would be doing if we were able to be reporting as usual. The one I'll say quickly before I ask for yours, uh, John, is is right now it's Steven Matz because I think that the way that the whole thing with Matz played out, uh, losing his spot in the rotation – uh, really underscored what the fans are missing ultimately uh, when we don't, when the writers don't have access because the Mets were able to keep us away from Steven Matz for five days as they were publicly not committing to him being in the rotation. Uh, and then we didn't get a reaction for him once he, from him once he was kicked out of the rotation. So under normal circumstances, what you would do was stand in the clubhouse, look at him every day, see if he was sulking, see if he was, a mad, see what was going on. I remember when John Main was on his way out, he used to pull you aside and be like, if I'm going down, I'm not going down without a fight. And this is blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, he was a psychopath, but you got that daily kind of feel for how he was handling a tricky situation. And I have no feeling for how Steven Matz is dealing with it. No one has a feeling. Steve Gelbs, who's, who's uh, normally would be with the team every day, has no personal uh, interaction with how Steven Matz is, is feeling. Uh, about any of this or what it's done to the trajectory of his career or what he's working on or anything. So I think that's a real concrete example of someone I'd like to talk to, to be able to tell Mets fans uh, something that's going on. So that's my, yeah, it's, it's a good example because uh, this is so weird, this whole thing. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I would, I'd love to be at the ballpark for these games, but really you're not getting much out of being at the ballpark anymore because right. everything is done by zoom call. Anyway, the, uh, the pregame, the postgame. So it's different. And you're right. You, you, I mean, over the years, as a beat writer, you learn, you, you, you learn so much about what's going on just by watching body language, things like that in the locker room, pre and post and all that stuff. So 
my, well, my prelude answer would be, I would love to sit down with Jeff McNeil and just say, what is going on in your head? Because yeah. he's, <laughs> we knew he was, uh, he had that snappage in him, but you're hearing it more with the live mics and no fans in the stands, just how crazy he is after every out it makes. And also what his preference, I'd like to know what, he, what kind of hitter is he really trying to be? Is you want to be that 350 hitter or is he want to be that guy that he fell in with the power last year? But that's only my setup to say, really the guy I'd like to talk to more is Rojas, who we've already talked about, because as you know, the, some of the best times things about being at the ballpark is being able to grab the manager one-on-one mm-hmm. -on -one after he's done his pregame thing. And maybe you're out on the field or wherever and just, you know, some, some might be on the record. Some might be off the record, depending on what he's willing to do. Uh, and just ask him some questions about what's going on. What does he think about some things and what does he see in players, things like that, that he might not want to share uh, publicly, you know, in a, in a broad setting, but if he, if he kind of trusts you, and you have that kind of relationship, you can really put a lot in your notebook, so to speak, about what's going on and for, for use to use it later. I mean, as you know, nobody was better at that with, than Terry Collins. <laughs> just and, and not, not necessarily even for information. Sometimes that was just some of the most entertaining times oh, yeah. ever was talking to Terry one on one at, at the ballpark. But it did. I mean, I, you, you, you and I both know we're still using some of that stuff we learned from him over the years in those little conversations about when things come up over the years about somebody like a Cespedes, for example, mm -hmm. kind of, he, he didn't mind telling a Cespedes story off the record now and then. That's for sure. No, he didn't. I, no, so. he did not. Uh, I remember, I mean, so many things about Terry, like you little things that you, you knew how bad a loss was for him. For example, I used to position myself um, toward the door. If you're in the press conference room at City Field, to our listeners, there's the podium, there's the seats that are in front of it, and then there's like a door where the manager walks out the door, goes toward the clubhouse, and he's done. I used to sit next to the door. So if I wanted to grab Terry about something after press conference, I was positioned to kind of line up with him on the way out the door. Yeah. And I would start being like a step or two back because you knew that when he got off the podium, if he whipped off his belt, <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, don't talk to Terry tonight. It was like, <laughs> after a big loss. But if he kept the belt on or walked normal, you were like, all right, tough loss, but he's he's approachable. And then you're right, you get something you learn. And for Rojas, that's, I think I may have used him as an example in one of these conversations with Doug in this very segment because you uh, would learn about him as a baseball man. Yeah, We're still getting to know this guy, and it's all public right now. And what you ask about in a press conference or in a Zoom press conference is like kind of a political decision. It's like, once you ask it, it could be a headline, it could be public, he could, you could be asking to talk about one of his players. But if you can get a guy one-on-one -on -one and be like, look, I'm not trying to blow anybody up, but what is going on with Rosario? Right, right. That can, that can get you a better. Yeah, and you, and you might have some information that you don't want everybody else to right. hear when you ask the question. That's part of it too. So yeah, Roas to me is an interesting guy. I think he feels comfortable enough that maybe you could have those conversations at some point once, uh, once you get to know him a little bit better, uh, yeah. we'll see, but that is, uh, that was, that was, <laughs> that was always entertainment with Terry. Uh, nobody was better than that. Oh, the, the only problem was where you lined up there when he came out of the press conference was three or four other guys were trying to fighting for that pole position too, because everybody knew if they could just grab Terry coming out of a press conference, you might get something that could give you your, your lead for your story, your column or story or whatever. So that was always a kind of a battleground to see who could get Terry in that situation. Well, I'd like to say, John, I have lost a lot of battles in my career, but 
I came out ahead of me grabbing Terry uh, <laughs> over the years. I, I did develop a little bit of the skill for knowing when to, how to approach him and when to push his buttons. But you're right. There was a lot of demand because you knew that he might yeah. up off. All right, John, it's always a privilege to talk baseball with you. It's a pleasure. I wish I had the chance to read more of your columns during this difficult year. But every time one is published, I read it closely. Uh, to our listeners, Doug and Keith will be back on Thursday, uh, unless I am asked to replace Doug, uh, because this has been so spectacular. That remains to be seen. But right now on the schedule, it's Doug and Keith uh, for Thursday. Remember to describe, to subscribe to Shea Anything at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. John, thank you for joining us. All right. Thanks, Andy. I enjoyed it. <laughs>